If you enjoy Champions for Children, be sure to check out the new podcast from Nemours Children's Health, Well Beyond Medicine. Subscribe today wherever you get your podcasts or at NemoursWellBeyond.org to continue hearing the stories of anything and everything related to the 80% of child health impacts that occur outside the doctor's office. And now, the episode of Champions for Children you requested. Enjoy! If you have kidney or liver failure outside of a developed country, you are going to die. There's no dialysis for kidney patients or very little available around the world. And there is no dialysis for liver patients. So without kidney or liver transplantation, you die. Sobering words from Dr. Stephen Dunn as we begin this episode of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. I'm Carol Vassar. Dr. Dunn is the chair of the Department of Surgery and division chief for the Nemours Solid Organ Transplant Program at NCH Delaware. We're talking with him today about his international work, his background as a surgeon, as a public health service veteran, and his determination to bring training, technology, and treatment for children with liver and kidney disease to a wider world. We'll hear about all that shortly. But first, let's go back to where the seeds of interest in medicine were sown for Dr. Dunn, rural Indiana. It's interesting. I I started first uh, to hear about medicine, actually in an odd situation. Uh, at church services, I would hear about medical missionaries, and I was always attracted to their work. It just seemed like They were doing really interesting things and really helping a lot of people, and it was just very inspiring. And so I think that was the original seed that was sort of sown in my life of interest in medicine. I did have a family doctor, but we were in a very small town in Indiana, and doctor's office hours occurred only in the evening in very crowded offices. And so I didn't really have much exposure to anyone in medicine. No one in my family had been in medicine. So I'm pretty sure it was just this sort of aspirational idea of helping other people in countries where they had little access to healthcare. How old were you when you heard these uh, physician missionaries coming in and, and talking to you at church services? Right. Well, I, I think I probably first started hearing about them when I was about six or seven years old. So I was pretty young, but it was very fascinating. And, you know, they were in Africa, they were in South America, they were in far off places. And they always had great stories about things that had happened that in which they were able to help. And it just seemed like a great thing to do. So you were six or seven, eight, nine, ten, hearing these stories. Yep come through high school and then off to college, what at that point made you turn to the medical field? Well, we did have a family friend who was headed for medical school and we were very close to him. And I asked him, I said, well, what do you have to do to get to be a doctor in medicine? And he said, well, you have to go to college. And I said, well, what did you study? He said, well, I was a chemistry major. I think it was a good thing to do. So I thought, well, if it worked for him, it might work for me. So I got into a 
very nice college in St. Louis, Washington University. And I went to see my advisor to plan out my freshman schedule. And I said, well, I want to be a chemistry major. And he said, well, then you really don't need me because chemistry is four years of study here. Here's the catalog for all the courses you need to take. Good luck. And that was it. (laughs) And that was it. Little did I know that I had chosen a school that had as its chancellor, Arthur Holly Compton of the Compton Effect. The Compton Effect, a scientific principle discovered by Dr. Compton that, at its most basic, accounts for a mechanism in which electrons collide and are dispersed by X-rays, and for which Dr. Compton was awarded the Nobel Prize in Physics. Dr. Dunn found himself becoming steeped in nuclear physics as a chemistry major, which he says has served him well. I would say it expanded my brain a good bit. It exposed me to a whole lot of statistics and things that became relevant to medicine, like we were looking at atomic structures uh, using magnetic resonance imaging before it became a modality for doing that in the whole human So there were a lot of foundations that it really helped me with, but I think it mainly was just the rigor of becoming a good student and learning how to learn and how to take responsibility for your own education. So chemistry gave you the basis. You were laser focused on going into medicine. What drew you to pediatric surgery? Well, actually, I didn't know what kind of doctor I wanted to be. I just wanted to be a doctor. I wanted to be like those people I'd heard about, and they didn't seem to be any particular kind of doctor. So I thought, well, doctors are doctors. Honestly, it's it's surprising how truly simple-minded I am. And so I went through the first couple of years of medical school, and I thought, wow, there's a lot of learning here, a lot of important stuff, but I don't really have a strong attraction to anything, but I thought definitely I don't want to do surgery because everybody around me said that the surgeons were, I'll use an old phrase, antediluvian. In other words, they just were primitive people who just wanted to hack people up. And then the chair of surgery came and talked and he was anything but that. By then I'd already made out my junior schedule and put surgery as the very last thing. And I got to my surgical rotation, having been pretty dissatisfied with a lot of other things along the way. And I suddenly realized this is it. I get to do something that makes sense to me and I can help people and I can take this skill anywhere in the world. And this is it. So I had to rearrange my whole senior year schedule and do a bunch of other things. But that was a moment at which I realized I needed to do surgery. Then flash forward to the fact that I had already made a commitment to the public health service to serve them for two years in return for scholarship money in medical school. And they didn't really want surgeons. They wanted primary care people. But I uh, was in my surgical internship and they said, okay, well, then you have to pay us back the two years that you owe us. And I wound up in Western Alaska in the Yukon Kuskokwim Regional Hospital as a commissioned officer in the United States Public Health Service, taking care of ubic Eskimos. And I was the only one with any surgical training in that building. And I wound up doing a whole bunch of procedures that most people would never let an intern in surgery do. You know, 50 or 60 appendectomies, a bunch of C-sections and other things. But the thing that really I realized was I loved taking care of kids. And so now I had this sort of tension between 
being a surgeon and wanting to take care of kids. And I realized, geez, I could be a pediatric surgeon. Maybe I knew it was really hard to get into that field, but I thought, well, when I get back to my surgical training, that's what I'm going to try to shoot for. I want to be a pediatric surgeon. And that's where it started. Where did you do your medical training and then your, your subsequent training? So I went to Indiana University Medical School, and then I went through their surgery training program. And then I went to St. Christopher's Hospital here in Philadelphia. That's how I came to the Philadelphia area, was to train in pediatric surgery at St. Christopher's. During the time that I was at St. Christopher's, I became faculty at four different medical schools while occupying the same office. Talk about instability. It was unstable, eventually resulting in bankruptcy. By then, we had a huge transplant program and liver and kidney, and I needed a safe haven for all these patients, literally several hundred patients. And so uh, Nemours was kind enough to take me in. I was sort of a medical refugee with an entourage of a couple hundred patients, and we moved here in June of 2000. We did our first liver transplant in July of 2000. And I've been privileged to watch us grow up into a really wonderful quaternary children's hospital in this region over the last 22 years. Talk about that, that passion for a solid organ transplant. For those who don't know what that is specifically, what is solid organ transplant? Why was it so important to those patients? Why is it important to patients today? Well, let me start on something that is a fact, but it will hopefully get everybody's attention. If you have kidney or liver failure outside of a developed country, you are going to die. There's no dialysis for kidney patients or very little available around the world. And there is no dialysis for liver patients. So without kidney or liver transplantation, you die. And Probably 70% of the kids currently alive in the world today with those diagnoses will die as a direct result. Whereas with transplantation, they get back more and more what seems to be a whole lifetime. The organ can last an entire lifetime. And so if you're talking about having an impact in terms of life years that are gained, this is just a wonderful opportunity. Really, really great thing to do with your life. Now, I didn't know I was going to do transplants until I got to St. Chris. I'd done all this stuff in the laboratory that was related to that while I was resident of medical students, but it didn't all come together until I got to St. Chris because at, at the time I started at St. Chris, it was the designated, federally designated liver transplant center and the only kidney transplant center in the Philadelphia area. And so before I even finished my training, I'd already done 40 kidney transplants and was beginning by liver transplant training. So it was the right place to be for me to do this as a career. And it's, it's really been great. It's been heartbreaking at times because there have been kids we couldn't help. But mostly it's just been amazing to see them grow up, have their own children. I mean, they're kids that I transplanted in 1987 who have their own families, their own children, and are still going strong. They're healthy, active people living the life that they wouldn't have had if they hadn't been transplanted. Talk about the progress technologically and medically over these last 22 years. 
Well, the instrumentation just for surgery itself is remarkably better. We had relatively primitive tools. Now, the nice thing about having trained in a relatively primitive environment and time is that as I go around the world and try to help other places get started, I know what that looks like already. And I know that we can't take with us all the things that we have available to us now. But it's, it's everything from better imaging so that we have a better understanding of the anatomy to better tools to stop bleeding, agents that allow us to see lines of demarcation, just nearly everything you can imagine. And there are even better developments that are coming with artificial intelligence. We're going to be able to get three-dimensional images that we can bring up even while we're looking at the patient. So it's just an exciting time to be alive and be in this field because hopefully it will get to be easier and more readily available for all the children of the world that I believe deserve this. Talk about your work worldwide. It sounds like you've made some wonderful contributions to getting this procedure to other countries, and and that may even have stemmed and be a through line in your life from those missionary physicians that you heard about very early in your life. Talk about your international work. Well, it's interesting that you would put those two things together because really, since I was interested and even when I was a senior medical student, I was in West Africa for three months. I thought, how does this whole transplant surgery thing, you know, lead back to that? Because really, honestly, about the only place where you can practice this is in the United States or Europe. And then uh, we transplanted a little boy from Bolivia. And he went back home and I get a call from someone saying, hey, we've got another kid in Bolivia who needs a liver transplant. Now, the problem, of course, is it's expensive therapy if you don't have insurance. And these kids, of course, didn't have American insurance. And so I felt terrible because I thought, wow, this kid's going to die if I don't do anything. But by then, we had already developed living donor liver transplant where a parent, usually a mother or father, would donate part of their liver for their small child, and that could be the source of the transplanted organ. So I got to thinking, well, if they have a kidney transplant program in that city, and some places will have kidney transplant programs, maybe their team and I could work together and I could bring my team and we could go there and do a living donor liver transplant. Well, it worked out. And in 1996, we did the first liver transplant in Santa Cruz, Bolivia. Actually, the first transplant in all of Bolivia, first liver transplant. And that young lady got married about a week ago. Amazing story. Really true. Literally about a week ago. It's a deeply emotional experience. Sometimes I feel like as I get older, I get to be more of an emotional mess. But I just love the idea that people can have healthy lives as a result of the things that we do here. And that's, that helps you overcome some of the barriers along the way, the things that are hard, the long nights, the worry about patients, time missed with friends and family. It, in the long run, I think it's worth it, but you, you kind of wish that there was a little better work-life balance. Anyway, back to the point, the point being that we started there in 96. We went to India in 98. We looked at some other sites. We tried to keep those programs going. I've been back to Bolivia probably 40 or 50 times over the last 25 years. We're trying to develop programs that 
are autonomous programs that can operate on their, their own and be successful. The program in India that we helped start is entirely autonomous and doing a great job for the children in their area. We're currently working at Bustamante Children's Hospital in Jamaica. I'll be there. We're going to be transplanting a couple kids there. And our hope is to help train their staff and prepare them so they can provide transplant care to the children of Jamaica, but not only them, all of the children in the Caribbean area who can easily get to Jamaica could be transplanted there. They have a very well-developed healthcare system, but they're currently not doing liver or kidney transplants for children on the island. And so we'd like to help them get there so they could take care of their own kids. Many, many others are trying to do the same thing, I think, with the same vision. You know, how can we help the world get this life-saving therapy? Talk about the team that you partner with to, A, get the job done at Nemours, and B, get this treatment out worldwide. Well, the foundation of this work depends on our specialists in kidney disease and liver disease. And Caroline Gluck is the leader of our end-stage kidney disease program, our transplant program, and Dr. Debo Adeyemi is the leader of our hepatology program. And we have other great doctors who are part of this. We have a specialist pediatric group that's led by Dr. Debbie Consolini. And then really at the center of the entire program are a group of extremely well-trained, very experienced, advanced practice nurses who work to be the essentially the center of these programs. They, they are the ones the families call with problems. They're the ones who see them on a long-term basis. They're the ones who bring the rest of those team members together for weekly conferences about patient care. And then beyond that immediate transplant group, then you have so many other people who you spend time with in the hospital. We just spent the last hour in pathology, going through pathology results with Dr. Kennard, the head of pathology. We then went over to the radiology department and looked at x-ray studies with Dr. Sharon Gould in radiology. And this just goes on and on. Jonathan Powell, who's one of our oncologists, is helping us in the care of a very, very difficult situation with a little four-week-old baby in the intensive care unit. And he's responding remarkably well to not only the chemotherapy Jonathan's giving, but to the excellent care that the intensivists are giving him. Just a remarkable group of nurses there, too, who run our phoresis program and have kept this kid alive by replacing his failing liver function with external support with chronic renal replacement therapy and, and in tandem, high-volume plasma exchange. So just remarkable things that are happening here that are making it more possible for more kids to live and sometimes avoid transplant because we're treating this child's liver failure by treating the underlying disease and the child's responding to therapy and may not need to be transplanted. And for me, that's actually as important as giving a transplant to someone who doesn't really have a choice. If we can help kids get better without transplant, that's the best of all. You've mentioned a, a couple of patient stories is there one maybe patient story that sticks with you and inspires you as you go about your work from day to day? Well, there are a lot of them, but one of them is a story that 
some of these start in very strange ways. Most of my friends will laugh if I say that I read an email because they know I'm so bad at reading emails. But I read an email and there was a little girl in Georgia who had biliary atresia and needed a liver transplant. And her surgeon there was trying to find some place that would accept her. Her mother was a college student studying pre-law at a local university. She was from Jamaica and uh, they were looking for a site where they could get transplanted. We brought her up after consideration for the impact of that on us as an institution. The little girl had very advanced liver disease and her mother was a donor and she was transplanted and she's now very healthy. I think she's about 10 years old now. But the reason I think of her a lot, it's because mom and the child went back to Jamaica. Another child came from Jamaica. Several more children came from Jamaica. And this led to us starting the program at Bustamante with one of their local surgeons who was aware of these children and what was happening. So I think of her not just as a wonderful child, well worth everything did, but also as someone who opened up a whole country to a therapy that I think is going to save a large number of children, not just in Jamaica, but in the Caribbean area. That's amazing stuff. And her mother, it sounds like, had a very big role in all of that. Talk about you and your team partnering with a patient's family, the importance of that. Well, yeah, so many of the parents have donated part of their liver to their children. I was just talking to a fellow in the last hour. His son is now 16, and he was the donor for his son when he was a baby. He was about six months old. And I, I always asked the parent who was the donor, how are you doing? Are you feeling okay? Any problems? Because, of course, they go through a big operation as part of the donation. But the bond between our team and those families is just remarkable. Annually, we get Christmas cards. We get notes. They tell us about important life events. The joy of seeing them get well results in your being a part of their lives from that point on. And it really is fulfilling. It's terrific. You have a terrific talent and sharing it is a wonderful thing. Let's talk about the past two and a half years, coronavirus pandemic, I'm sure changed the way you did your work locally and internationally. Talk a little bit about that. Well, yeah, pretty much we stopped traveling and that kind of put some things on hold. And, and frankly, some of those children who we were going to transplant died because we couldn't get there to help them. So that's extremely sad. The uh, other thing we didn't know was how would our children respond to COVID? Would they get very sick? They're immunosuppressed. Theoretically, you know, they could really have an adverse reaction. Thankfully, none of our kids have gotten terribly sick. And even those who got a little bit sick have responded to treatment very nicely. So that wasn't so bad. But just switching gears for a second, because I'm the chair of the Department of Surgery, we had an institutional issue in front of us, and that is we're an acute care hospital. So as we went into COVID, we needed to protect the caregivers so that they could go on doing the life-saving care they do here every day without getting other people infected. So it was just a, a very weird combination of having to think long and hard about what's safe, what's best, what can we do, and uh, can we get through this? You know, at that point, there was no vaccination, there was no effective medication, at least it didn't appear to be. 
So things are really changing now. Feels like we're getting closer to being normal, although it seems like this infection is now becoming very common, but not so severe. Just changed the world, I think. What words of wisdom might you have for your fellow associates, your colleagues who are who are listening today. You've been in, in the field and done some fabulous work locally, internationally. What would you say? I think you always have to rekindle the joy, just the wonder of patients coming back to life from death's door. There's nothing that can substitute for that. And we get distracted with so many things. And before we know it, we're getting older and We look back and we think, how did we spend our lives? I think no one could ever feel like their life had been poorly spent if they're trying to help children grow up healthy and live a good life. I think we're here for the right reason. We're trying to do the right thing. I think we're always trying to figure out how to do it better than we used to do it. And um, it's just a privilege to be here every day. Dr. Stephen Dunn is the chair of the Department of Surgery and division chief for the Nemours Solid Organ Transplant Program at Nemours Children's Hospital in Delaware. We're always looking for new podcast ideas from you, the Nemours associates who are listening. We get a lot of them that way, and we'd love to hear from you. Podcast at Nemours.org is the email. That's podcast at Nemours.org. The Champions for Children podcast is found on Nemoors.net and the Nemours Now app and wherever you find your other favorite podcasts, including your smart speaker. Many thanks to Cheryl Munn, Che Parker, and Rachel Salas-Silverman for their production support this week. Our music is courtesy of Blue Dot Sessions in Turner's Falls, Massachusetts. On behalf of Dr. Stephen Dunn, I'm Carol Vassar, and we thank you for listening to this edition of the Nemours Champions for Children podcast. Until next time, please stay safe, stay well, and thank you for all you do for the children and families we serve.